The name Solar Winds has become synonymous with a scary cybersecurity crisis. It's one of at least two wide-scale breaches to which the government had to respond. The other is when hackers showed they could get into and take over Microsoft Exchange Server. The Government Accountability Office took a look at the federal response to these two incidents. With what it found, the director of GAO's Information Technology and Cybersecurity team, Jennifer Franks. Ms. Franks, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. All right. So describe briefly, if you would, what happened, especially with the solar winds, because everyone says it's a supply chain attack, but that doesn't really tell you what happened exactly. So with the solar winds attack, a private company in Texas who provides network management and monitoring software to be used for either private sector needs or federal government needs, they were attacked. As early as January 2019, a threat actor, which we have confirmed to be the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, breached the SolarWinds company. And in that, they were able to then insert their Trojans for the back door into the software that needed to be sent out to the various private sector and federal agencies for their software usage. It laid dormant for a little bit and waited for those agencies to then install that patch into their network services. And still laying a little bit under the radar, they were then able to navigate or pivot across different network connections of those attacked network entities and then potentially gain some harmful information that could intrude on the privacy of our citizens. All right. And of course, it affected industry also, and even massive attacks on industry become the government's affair. So what you looked at then here as GAO was just the, what, the quality of the government response to it? Yes, this review was definitely regarding the quality. We didn't do a deep dive analysis into the forensics of what happened, starting at the indicator compromise to the remediation of those agencies that were potentially impacted. What we did do is look at how a cyber unified coordination group, which was made up of individuals from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the FBI, the Office of the Director of Intelligence, and then NSA. We looked at how that UCG really came together to respond to those high-profile incidents. And there were two different UCGs stood up, one to respond to the solar winds and another to respond to the Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities. And they were able to collectively come together to share information and then collaboratively work to issue additional communications to aid in the agency's response and recovery efforts. So that is to say they didn't stumble over each other and send conflicting (laughs) signals, but they acted like some sort of a string quartet, you might say? Absolutely. And and it's very helpful to agencies to have that information sharing component with that one sound, one voice, so that they don't get confused as to which agency has the higher precedence for responding to in terms of this. So does it appear that they had maybe thought about this ahead of time, what would happen if a major type of industrial grade breach happened, how they would all react? And I guess my secondary question is, one, do they know what they were going to do in advance? And secondarily, it looks like CISA became the point of contact for everyone, even though other agencies were helping out in the background? Yes, absolutely. So the the mission, the vision of CISA is to coordinate those cybersecurity response efforts 
for the government. They are to now to be that voice for everybody to look for, to provide that initial emergency directives, response efforts that charge, that kind of collectively provides information sharing based on the persistent cyber threats or even in the circumstances of responding to this type of cyber event. So yes, CITA does have the lead in this effort and they definitely took the responsibilities for helping agencies to collectively review what could have been impacted for their environment. Your question about were they prepared or did they assume this was going to happen? It's not that they assumed a SolarWinds or a Microsoft Exchange vulnerability would happen, but a UCG has been established for quite some time. And they often stand up for response efforts to high profile events such as this. So this was not their first time coming together, but every agency is sought to have their own incident response plans and the procedures. And they also test those plans, which also then navigate into contingency planning efforts. So should there be a disruption in your services, what happens next? Who is responsible and how do you get to the recovery remediation phase? So the UCGs come together to aid that information sharing process for federal government agencies that could be impacted all at once. We're speaking with Jennifer Frank. She's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And so while Russia was doing solar winds, it's almost like Ukraine and Taiwan. China was going after Microsoft's uh, Exchange server and similar type of response quality. Did you find there also? Yeah, absolutely. Very similar. So based on the self-reported data from the 23 civilian CFO agencies, all the agencies perform forensic triage required by CISA again. So looking at CISA as the governance authority to provide them that initial emergency directive of how they should be responding and what they should be looking for in their various environments. And, and zero of those 23 civilian agencies actually reported this image exchange vulnerability as a major incident to Congress. So that was actually very beneficial for all of the agencies to note that it did not majorly impact either their agency networks. And what about the Defense Department response to this? Because often they operate on their own relative to the civilian side, and there's a lot of culture behind that. But how do they do with respect to the solar winds and the Microsoft Exchange hacks? So that is actually a really good question. And our primary focus was on the agencies responsible for responding to these solar winds and Microsoft Exchange server incidents, which is why I highlighted the 23 civilian CFO at agencies on how they responded to CISA and whether they did or did not potentially declare this as a major incident. We do, however, know that DOD did not declare either event as a major incident. Although we didn't really do a deep dive at any of these agencies for the, the review, like I noted, looking at the indicator of compromise through the recovery and remediation phases, we do have ongoing work at DOD, specifically under the mandate included in the fiscal year 2021 National Defense Authorization Act. And in this mandate, we are indeed looking at DOD's cyber incident management and efforts to mitigate risk of future attacks. That review will come out a little bit later this year. And any lessons learned for the other civilian side from this? Or do they pretty much go by the playbook and everything was hunky-dory? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned the playbook because that cybersecurity executive order that was issued May of last year definitely had a cybersecurity playbook 
implemented in one of the action items that they are to undertake at this time. And that playbook was issued in November of 2021. But the lessons learned for this report really look at how these 23 civilian agencies categorize their lessons learned either in the positives or in the negative practices of what took place. So looking at the positive, the agencies coordinated with private sector, which is really a strong plus. And then they were able to effectively coordinate with each other, which is also really good for responding and recovering from such a high profile incident. And these efforts really did lead to desirable outcomes. Specifically, agencies highlighted coordination allowed the federal government to identify this large scale solar winds event and then respond quickly. And it also provided increased visibility on the status of patching and then exploitation cases of the Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities. It also, again, provided ways for the government to now build some trust with the private sector so that in the future, should another high-profile event impact us, we have a way of working together collaboratively to respond to those significant incidents. Now, for the negatives, though, the federal government agencies did indeed identify some challenges or undesirable outcomes. Specifically, agency classification levels became kind of difficult for agencies, given the information sharing that was desired between law enforcement, private sector, and even intelligence groups. And challenges with this classification made it often difficult to communicate timely and sometimes time-consuming. All right. Now, over the years, uh, GAO has made about 47 million cybersecurity recommendations. I'm exaggerating. (laughs) Did you have any new ones this time, or this was just kind of a look-see and folks, here's some things to keep in mind type of report? That's a good question. I'm going to have to use that 47 million sometime soon. But no, we did not make any new recommendations in this particular report. The intent for the report was to be a primarily descriptor regarding the incident. So really just going through what happened um, and that descriptive timeline from indicator compromise to recovery from a description perspective. But we do have many, many existing recommendations out there that need to be fully implemented, which we continually highlight. And I noted the DOD work, but we have several other reviews ongoing looking at cyber incident response at federal agencies, and we will definitely continue to identify areas of improvement. All right. Jennifer Franks is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Team at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.